All right. Welcome, everyone. My name is Jeremy Wallace. I'm the Solutions Architect here at Amazon Web Services. And I'm very excited today to introduce a company who provides millions of time series metrics per second to customers all around the world. And so here to discuss how they've used EBS to lower costs while improving performance and availability of Cassandra on AWS, it's my pleasure to introduce Mike Hefner uh, from uh, Data Engineering at Labrado and Peter Norton, who's the operations lead here at Labrado. So I'll pass it on to them. And uh, well, thanks. Welcome. Um, so yeah, uh, so just a little background for um, those who might not uh, know Labrado. Uh, we are part of the SolarWinds Monitoring Cloud. Uh, that is a uh, combination of the products uh, you see here. Um, we're both uh, with Labrado today, and you know specifically Labrado is a metrics and monitoring uh, solution uh, provided uh, as a service in the cloud. We're consuming, uh, like Jeremy mentioned, uh, hundreds of thousands, millions of time series every second. Uh, we store that for you, do data processing on that, uh, provide real-time dashboards, uh, and push all of that data through our powerful uh, alerting platform. Um, uh, we have hundreds of integrations, uh, so based on you know, what you're running in your stack today, uh, there's a high chance that you're already running with something that we support today. Um, and we also have you know, third-party contributions and other integrations that um, will get you going uh, and get data into the system. Uh, because we are at an AWS conference, uh, I want to mention that we also have native CloudWatch support, so you just give us your IAM credentials, we'll pull that data into the system. Uh, natively into your account. Um, Real-time dashboards, so these work as well if you're uh, firefighting on your laptop or you want to take this, put it on the wall, and see a real-time updating view of your infrastructure. Uh, and all that data uh, that we are collecting, all of that goes through our alerting framework. So everything that you can put on a chart, you can create an alert. And we'll send those notifications out to this popular services that you're using today, uh, Slack, uh, Ops Genie, PagerDuty, um, uh, et cetera. So uh, like I mentioned, we consume a large number of time series metrics, uh, hundreds of thousands every second uh, into the service. We have chosen and we've been on uh, for many years now Apache Cassandra as the sort of data store for all that um, processing. And you know, Apache Cassandra, you know, one of the major use cases for that is time series metrics. Uh, it works great for sort of that scalable high write load um, and, you know, the ability to sort of horizontally scale that out. Um, and, yeah, all of, the, all of our data is committed directly into that, and we serve all of our read queries uh, from that uh, as our primary data store for metrics. Um, so we do run multiple Cassandra rings on our infrastructure. And we've sort of split them into, I would say, two distinct categories. Um, we have our real-time uh, Cassandra rings that, and these are consuming the traffic coming directly into our API. This is the real-time, one-second resolution data. We're storing that for, you know, on about a average of about a week uh, retention, sort of that window where you want that firefighting, high-resolution, high-granularity data. And the challenge is there is that because that workload is so heavy, uh, we're expanding those rings simply to consume that write load. So a lot of CPU scaling of those rings, much larger uh, ring sizes in general to support that workload. On the other side, 
you know, we take that data, we uh, downsample that to 15-minute samples, to hourly samples, and we store that for longer just to give you that sort of historical trend analysis. Uh, and those rings that we push that data into, the write load's much, uh, much smaller because we are downsampling. But uh, the challenge there is that because we are storing that data for longer, we actually use more of the disks on those nodes. So uh, much higher disk volumes on those rings, but smaller rings in general there. Um, you know, sort of, uh, oops, sorry. Uh, so sort of where we were um, last year, uh, we do run, uh, we were running Cassandra 2011 uh, as our primary release across all of our rings, uh, some patches on top of that. Uh, we were using the i2 2x large instance type. Uh, if you've read the Datastax post or the Netflix post, that's sort of the preferred instance type, gives you the best balance of SSD performance, um, with, you know, larger CPU and memory core counts there. Um, so sort of the default go-to for Cassandra workloads. Uh, we had, I think at last count, about 160 of those running total across both our real-time rings and our longer retention rings. Um, uh, Librato has been a long-time uh, Amazon customer, so we were in that camp that, uh, you know, we never used EBS. Uh, you know, hearing the horror stories of past, uh, nothing in our infrastructure, Cassandra, or anything else actually ran on EBS uh, at this point in time. So that meant that these nodes were limited to so that one and a half terabyte you can get uh, from an I2-2X large if you raid zero over those drives. Um, so some of the challenges from that, uh, you know, because we were locked in at the I2-2X large, we didn't have uh, flexibility in terms of capacity, uh, in terms of being able to run uh, on... Uh, larger CPU core counts um, for those real-time rings where we actually had that high workload coming in. So we ended up actually running these rings pretty hot, uh, well past sort of our, our even a, a general comfort level that you should be running Cassandra at. Um, and uh, like I said, because we were not on EBS, that persistent data was tied to that instance. So you know, when we lost instances, which you know we lost a lot of instances over time, uh, it meant that we were spending hours to days just streaming data back into these rings to replace those nodes. Um, and you never want to run at like a degraded ring state for that long of a time. And because uh, we were then limited at that one and a half terabytes, uh, we had to actually scale those rings out on the longer retention side simply to add disk capacity. We didn't need any more core count. Performance was great. It's, it's simply we were running out of disk space. Um, so sort of just to illustrate, uh, you know, when you're running a ring, a ring at a 60, 75% CPU level, uh, and you actually hit the point where you actually do need to scale that up, um, uh, if you know Apache Cassandra, you know that, you know, when you bring a new node in, it starts the bootstrapping process, uh, the existing nodes split, split up their tokens, stream their data into these new nodes, um, but they're doing this while they're consuming the existing write load you're pushing into this ring. So they're now doing this double duty to support streaming into the new node, but also handling that existing, handling that existing write load. So you get to this scenario where uh, you then actually have nodes that then end up just collapsing. They just cannot do this much workload starting at that high base CPU level. So we ended up uh, having to do a lot of scenarios where... Um, you know, we would try this, try some hacks to get a node, a ring to scale up, um, or we just stand up an entirely new ring of a larger size, move data over. 
Uh, but what this generally meant is that you know, we were spending a lot of uh, a lot of money on the Cassandra part of our infrastructure. Uh, specifically, at last count, it was uh, approximately 60% uh, of our total uh, AWS infrastructure costs coming just directly from these I2-2X larges. Um, so that brings us up to sort of late last year. Um, you know, one of the things we had uh, recently, uh, earlier in the year, uh, scaled up our ops team. And sort of one of the major directives that we had um, for the team was we needed to move off of EC2 Classic and onto the Amazon VPC environment. Uh, it was clear from all the new services, the new instance types, that uh, the future was on the VPC environment. Um, and the team took this as an opportunity to sort of redo all the infrastructure work that we had put in place there, um, really go to sort of all the best of breed tools, so SaltStack, Terraform, Flask, um, and also, we wanted to use this then as an opportunity to overhaul all of the Cassandra work that we've done, go to the latest releases, move to newer hardware. And I think one of the things that really kicked this off was last year at this conference, uh, we attended the CrowdStrike talk on how they had moved their Cassandra workload to Amazon EVS. Um, saw this talk, uh, really, you know, they... Um, we're able to do this successfully, got some big wins on that. So that was really sort of the spark that ignited this. Um, if you haven't seen that talk, highly recommend going to see that talk, going back, watching that. Um, I would say large portions of this talk sort of build on that. Um, you know, specifically, actually, when we started off, our sort of initial spec that we wanted to hit came from a lot of the things that CrowdStrike found. Um, for us, we wanted to go to Cassandra 2.2, uh, latest port, latest release in that line. Um, not too uh, comfortable going to Cassandra 3.0 at the time because, um, you know, we had been successful on Cassandra 2, so we wanted to just go to the latest sort of release in that sort of uh, feature line. Uh, move to the C4 instances, you know, get that additional CPU capacity. Uh, the GP2, obviously, we wanted to go to sort of split configuration, data and commit log, and separate partitions. Um, and then just the best to sort of breed uh, OS and system tunings uh, for Cassandra. The big one here for us was also the enhanced networking driver because we were moving to the VPC environment. Um, so with that in place, uh, you know, we started uh, right around about February of this year. Uh, on this path. Um, and one of the things, uh, you know, we had done some level of uh, performance tuning and uh, stress testing, but what we found in the past is that we get really the best sort of test capability running our own production workload uh, into a Cassandra ring and actually seeing how that performs over time as you're doing additional compactions um, and just other periodic behavior of the, the Cassandra rings. Uh, so one of the things we've done early in our process We've moved all of our Cassandra read and write paths through a single uh, tier uh, in our backend service. Uh, so any portion of our site that needs access Cassandra measurements, uh, we'll actually go through this service to get that data. So the nice thing about that is that we can, with a um, flip of a configuration switch, is if we stand up a new ring that we want to test a new configuration on, put that configuration flag in place and push our entire production workload into this new ring. Um, this doesn't impact the downstream clients, um, and we're seeing sort of exactly what that mirrored workload looks like going into that new, uh, that new ring. And similarly on the read side, um, 
tad different in that you know we only pull data from a single re a single ring at a time, but we can actually on a per user basis do a similar process in that we actually flip a configuration switch that pulls data from our new test ring. We can check for correctness, um, performance characteristics, etc. Obviously, dog food that for our own user first. Um, scale that up to maybe some friendlies um, onto some larger account. Uh, if anything doesn't work right, you know, just quickly go back um, and uh, test there again. So, um, so with this in place, uh, we sort of started this process off, started our dual writing, pushing our entire production workload into a new test ring that we had set up, and pretty quickly, quickly we noticed uh, this behavior that while the rings themselves were performing quite well in terms of you know, CPU uh, volumes were low, you know, EBS metrics looked all right. Um, we were still seeing these timeouts uh, where uh, individual writes would just be completely lost after 10 seconds, uh, where the sort of P99 for us was under 200 milliseconds. And it was just, yeah, periodic individual writes that would just get lost in the system. Uh, this write timeout, um, our write timeout in our Cassandra config uh, match this value of 10 seconds. Um, so something was just getting lost in the system, uh, but uh, spent a lot of time sort of figuring out what had happened here. Um, you know, the downside is we sort of introduced a whole uh, set of variables to sort of the equation here. Uh, we had upgraded Cassandra, we'd gone to new instance types, we'd switched to EVS. Um, so we sort of did a lot of back and forth trying to eliminate some of those variables. But the one thing we kept coming back to was when we took the Cassandra workload and went back to our original hardware configuration, um, we still found that we were seeing these uh, these timeouts on the, the version we've been using. So continued a little bit more, uh, went to the latest release in the 2.0 line that we had been on before uh, and didn't actually see those. Uh, so at this point, we were fairly confident that whatever was going on was something to do with the Cassandra versions. And like I mentioned, we had been doing a lot of work with our tooling, so we could actually stand up and tear down these rings pretty quickly. Uh, so we sort of did this process, so we just went along and uh, bisected the uh, releases between these two points of time, till we ended up with, uh, uh, to the point where we ended up, where between 2.14 and 2.15, uh, we were actually noticing this bug come in uh, the timeouts would uh, appear in 2.15, and as we back down to 2.14, um, they were they would drop off. And we sort of second-guessed uh, sort of a lot of our configuration at the time, um, but it was pretty clear as we went back and forth that, you know, when we went down to 2.14, you know, performance returned to exactly where we would expect it to be. Uh, so with that in place, uh, and understanding that something in 2.15 had broken this, we continued that process, get bisecting sort of the merge commits into that 2.15 release. Finally came down to a single merge commit uh, that uh, introduced these timeouts. We went through sort of line by line, did a couple PR reviews on that until we found a sort of suspicious time conversion there that um, didn't use the right uh, factors for converting times on the timeout values for metrics. Uh, so. Uh, patch that, filed this era, uh, we're able to sort of move on from that point to sort of this next level. Um, one, of the, one of the things we did find uh, when we were actually going through this process is that um, because we had introduced so many new variables, one of the biggest being EBS, 
Uh, we spent a lot of time sort of second-guessing the performance that we were getting with EBS. Um, and there were sort of two major factors that came in here. Uh, if the uh, GP2, um, the GP2 volumes were bursting, we weren't aware as to if that was actually depleting that balance. Um, it was sort of a mystery quota that uh, we weren't sure if we were depleting that, somehow blocking then on the GP2 device. Um, because uh, those metrics just didn't exist for the GP2 devices. Uh, similarly, the uh, resolution on EBS CloudWatch metrics, uh, five minute currently, um, we ended up uh, installing our own agent, setting a interval of 10 seconds on that, and actually getting the EBS write data from the uh, instances themselves at a 10 second resolution, just to ensure that, you know, because we were seeing 10 second timeouts, that there wasn't something hidden in those five minute averages that potentially we were hitting uh, and causing that blocking. So I would recommend that um, as well if, if you are running uh, on an EBS workload that uh, you might potentially want sort of a higher resolution metric there, um, pull those from the instance uh, themselves. Um, on the second point uh, here, um, so uh, earlier, uh, last month, uh, that was actually released. So uh, the GP2 burst balance metric is now available. Uh, so if you are, you know, going on to this, if you're testing EBS, uh, you should be able to see that and see if you are depleting that um, burst balance for your devices. Um, so uh, the next sort of struggle that we hit, uh, as we were standing up and tearing down these rings, uh, not always tearing them down uh, as we wanted, uh, we didn't actually um, uh, shut down Cassandra cleanly, which meant that when we actually would stand it back up, it would have to replay a large portion of the commit log, and we actually hit bottlenecks on the 200 gigabyte GP2 volume that we had assigned for that. Um, we had the 600 IOPS that you get max for that. Um, you were able to burst over that, but we would actually see as these long 15, 30, even longer uh, startup times from that. And it was pretty clear that, you know, the commit log for us was sort of a bottleneck. Um, we wanted to sort of continue testing. We had moved to a one terabyte volume, obviously additional cost there. We'd also tried just putting it onto the data disk, uh, not uh, what we'd like, uh, you know, we'd prefer to have separated those. Uh, but it sort of get, kept us going um, in the sort of general testing process. Um, and one of the things, you know, it, it just sort of happened that, you know, around the same time, uh, this Twitter conversation between Jeff and Eric was ongoing, and Eric had mentioned that they had had a lot of success with the new throughput-optimized uh, EBS volumes, uh, specifically for the commit log volumes, uh, and that they were obviously uh, a cheaper uh, performance-wise uh, for the same amount of storage. So as we were still in our sort of early days of this configuration, we actually gave this a shot right out of the gate, uh, and it it worked well for us. We were actually able to set up, uh, move it from a 200 gigabyte GP2 volume to a 600 gigabyte ST1 partition, um, and uh, get that additional capacity, get those additional IOPS. However, still be able to not completely sort of blow out the cost there, um, because the SD1 is um, just a little under you know 50% of the GP2 costs there. Uh, and for us, kept that commit log separate from the data. Um, and so that brought us up to our last sort of struggle that we hit on this journey, uh, which was as we started to scale up our read load, we started to see 
uh, what was uh, in the logs as small message drops uh, across our Cassandra rings. It would start slow, maybe over a few hours, but uh, over the period of a day or two, it would actually grow to uh, essentially encompass the entire ring. All the nodes were timing out, dropping messages in between them, uh, even though the rings themselves were completely fine in terms of capacity. Uh, CPU was low, uh, network volumes were low, even, even the EBS performance was, was fine. So uh, we were able to roll the rings periodically, which would sort of fix things for a day, but it would then slowly start creeping back up again, which was obviously not okay for us. Um, uh, I think this was now like four to five months into our testing framework, uh, into our testing sort of period. Uh, the cost for this was growing. You know, we've been running a lot of dual hardware. Uh, some of our RIs were starting to expire on I2s. So it, it got to the point we were sort of stuck here. Uh, we needed to really sort of reach out for additional help. Um, see if we can sort of get past this stage uh, in our testing framework. So I uh, wanted to give, uh, we actually called up the last pickle. Uh, so they're a uh, Cassandra consulting firm. Uh, they're a really great team if, you've, if you haven't worked with them. Uh, they were a very understanding of sort of where we're at in our position, the sort of urgency to move forward. Um, so we got on the phone with them, did a sort of quick walkthrough of the code. Uh, they actually took some of the messages in the logs, were able to identify where sort of that, um, where those drops were coming from. And it turned out that it was in something called the network coalescing module uh, that had been added to Cassandra previously. And uh, what that does, it combines small packets sent over the wire into larger packets, uh, typically to sort of reduce network overhead, uh, particularly very high uh, packet volumes. So we turn this off. Um, there is a ability just to disable this entirely. So they suggested uh, we, we actually try this out across our rings. We turn this on and yeah, after about two weeks, we hadn't seen any of these additional timeouts. Um, so great, you know, we had sort of solved all the remaining problems for us. Um, obviously downside of turning off network coalescing is that you are spending more on the network throughput. Um, but for us, we weren't at a volume yet that we were seeing any real change in the performance, um, you know, of our read and or write volumes. So for now, uh, you know, it was now July. We had actually then finally gotten our first production ring up, uh, shut down the old I2 rings that we'd been running there, and, you know, just decided that, hey, we'll live with that sort of network overhead for now. Um, you know, it's a future item to sort of come back and take a look at. So uh, flash forward to today. Um, so where we are actually sitting now, uh, we have sort of our two ring types, the real-time ring uh, configuration and the longer retention rings. Not a lot of uh, major differences. Uh, we do use the C4 uh, 4S larges on our real-time rings where we need that additional CPU capacity for that heavy workload. Uh, and then on the longer retention rings, you know, the CPU workload uh, is not as great, um, but we do want a somewhat additional memory capacity, so we have been using the, the M4 class machines there. Uh, and obviously the longer retention rings, we've doubled the uh, amount of disk storage that we can run there with. So, um, I think one of the biggest improvements we saw, uh, we, ran, we went from running at 60 to 75 percent CPU volumes down to less than 25 percent CPU uh, across most of our real-time rings. Uh, this essentially equated um, 
and also other, you know, Cassandra performance improvements, uh, equated to almost uh, half a second uh, latency drop in our P99 uh, right side. So significantly better performance uh, right side, read side as well. Uh, this was, you know, a, a much better improvement uh, from where we were before. Um, and um, from a cost perspective, uh, this is actually, uh, our, if you looked at our real-time ring configuration, we were at about 120 nodes that were running across our uh, real-time rings. We dropped that down to just 66 uh, of the C4 4X larges. And if you added in the total cost of the additional EBS, uh, EBS volumes there, came out to about a 35% savings. Uh, but this is, um, honestly, like I said, we have a lot of additional capacity. We can actually grow into sort of the uh, savings uh, that we have there and, and hopefully uh, increase sort of that saving factor over time. Uh, on the longer retention side, um, not as much of a savings initially out of the gate, but we now actually have twice the amount of disk capacity there. Um, so once again, uh, we totally expect to grow into these savings. Um, and, and see a lot more value there as well. Um, uh, one thing also, obviously, on the uh, real-time configuration, um, excited to take a look at what the sort of C5s uh, will do for this uh, cost factor for us. Um, so yeah, uh, so that's uh, sort of the journey that we took uh, to get to where we are today. And um, I'm gonna hand this over to Peter to sort of talk about the new uh, operational story that we have. All right. Um, okay, you can hear me, right? <clears throat> So yeah, so this is the new world, right? And um, usually in operations, new means bad or at least scary. And we, we clearly had a lot of time to get here. But in the mean, you know, while we were doing all of this work, we were thinking about how are we going to make this so that we can make our lives better. And what's interesting is if you've ever, uh, I hope most of you are here because you use Cassandra and you're looking at making your life better. And the hard part is when you're normally doing a recovery or you have um, a failure, Cassandra's very slow in the same way that Mike described the scale-up behavior, you have the same issues when you're recovering. The ring is down, it has less capacity, and you have to reflow all your data back in. It's a lot of work, and, and you can cause a collapse when you thought you were redundant enough. What EBS lets you do, and VPC, getting an ENI and VPC lets you do, is it actually lets you pretend that the node didn't go down. You can reattach those resources to a new node. And we were a little dubious about that, but we talked to some people who had done that, and we found that it works really, really well. Now, it just, it acts like it didn't die. And so we kind of live this cloud ops dream of like, we have no extraordinary application or Cassandra level work to do when we bring a node back up after a failure. And so we, we are actually reducing our uh, mean time to recovery because we still can't control when a node goes down, but our recovery time is so much better that it doesn't cause as much uh, panic or as much worry during the recovery process. Um, so the other thing we can take advantage of here is that we, you can see we brought up a lot of rings to experiment with when we were doing the Git bisect when we had uh, those ring timeouts and failures. We kept bringing up software, we kept bringing up different rings, we took them down if something would delay us for a few days and we'd bring them back up and reconfigure them and try things out over and over. So it's really important to us to be able to do this whenever we need to. Uh, the more we can automate it, the faster and easier it is, and the easier it is to store the data without paying for the instance, the better it is. So we help Mike's team out with that often and we can bring these up on our own if we need to. And it just is much better than having to disrupt an active ring to run an experiment, to be able to bring up a new ring, try something out, and then bring it down, whether it's configuration, disk, instance type, et cetera. It's just become a lot better for us. 
Now, the way we do this, the tools we use for it is uh, Terraform. And I think of what Terraform does as being the substrate. The substrate is uh, all of the infrastructure that has a lifespan longer than a single instance. So for us, the primary resources we have here are EBS volumes, the ENIs, and the security groups that go along with the new ring. Each one gets its own set of those resources, and that way when we bring these up with Terraform, they endure past any failures, and we don't have to worry about the state machine of a particular system trying to bring up new ones or not by making decisions. They just only do attachments of these existing resources. One of the other things uh, that's nice about that is that when we bring these resources down, because they've all been you know, purpose-created for this one particular ring, when we're done with the ring, we know that all the resources can be removed again. Um, I say that because clearly that would be what you would expect, but if anyone here has started you know, doing AWS from scratch, we have a tendency to attach like security groups to multiple things because they seem similar, and after a while you're not sure what the purpose is. And I think of that as cloud hoarding, and this helps us avoid that particular pitfall. You can get over it many ways, but for us this was a really great uh, clean start when we moved to VPC, and I highly recommend this or something like it to make that work out. So I mentioned that Terraform deals with things that last longer than an instance. For all of our instances, we launch rings with SaltStack. SaltStack lets us do a lot of automation around that. It lets us launch an instance. It automates attaching the EBS and ENI because it has all of the things we need to do discovery and configuration to find those resources and bring them together. Um, the Salt API also lets us put guardrails into the process and, and procedures that are very straightforward. So even though we do a lot of tricky stuff inside of it, we have a really straight path from start to end. We launch things the same way we uh, create rings would be the same way we scale rings. The commands we actually run when we're, at, when we're in the trenches are the same things we did when we stood it up, which is great. Now, how this works out for us, and, and it, it looks simple, but what happens for us is that we have an EBS and we have an ENI, and they're, uh, they're durable. They don't die when the instance dies, and that's part of the configuration that we do with Terraform. And so when we actually have an instance failure, right, I mean, sometimes... Uh, you can control when the instance fails, right? You want to change a node, you suspect maybe it's not performing up to par, you can control it. And you still want to be able to do your shutting down of listeners, you want to be able to do a flush and a drain and a stop to make sure you have a controlled shutdown with your data, but sometimes it just fails. In either case, once you get to that point, um, instead of having to do recovery, instead of having to do a replace address and wait for this whole thing to, to go through the very laborious process of recreating that node in the ring, what happens is the instance's uh, termination becomes uh, the initiation for the EBS and the ENI to get disconnected from it. And at that point, you can just replace the instance. And so our salt configuration re you know, only works on the attachments. When we launch a new node, these resources get attached. We run our configuration. We tell it, okay, you're ready, rejoin the ring. And it's as though, about you know, 10 to 15 minutes, it's as though the node had just taken a nap and rejoined the ring. It had never crash per se. There's no recovery. It just starts. Hints are replayed. We do extend our hint time a little bit to a few hours just in case something goes wrong, but that gives us plenty of room for recovery. And so once it starts, it's back to normal. Now the other aspect of dealing with issues is that disaster recovery usually means with Cassandra, or the generic way to do it with Cassandra is uh, you do SS table snapshots and then you take those to S3. And the biggest problems there are one that's very intensive on the same interface you're using to give customers their data. And so you have the lower bar of data that you have for customers, and this really high bar with a CPU sending as much data as it can to S3. It's a lot of data and it's a lot of resources that we would rather not have to interfere with our business. 
And also, we have a lot of redundant data. The larger the SS tables get, the less likely they are to get compacted out, and the more likely it is you're re-uploading the same data over and over to S3. When it gets to S3, you then have to run a pruning process that will eliminate the redundancy. Even that way, when you do that, you end up with a relatively high S3 bill. Uh, with EBS, snapshots make this a lot better. We have our own ops API. That ops API lets us initiate snapshots from cron. It lets us make sure we know they're done. And then it lets us clean them out after a period. And the way EBS snapshots work is that it does block level differences. And so a lot of that manual pruning gets taken care of automatically in a smarter fashion than what we would be doing manually on S3. Well, not manually, but what we would be doing ourselves. So, wait a minute. All right, there we go. So, yeah, that word right. Sorry. So, yeah, so the other thing that we really like, and Mike alluded to this before, is that we've liberated ourselves from having our storage, our memory, and our CPU tied to the instance type. Um, the I2 instances are really performant in some respects, but they don't really... Uh, they didn't, well, you have i3s now, which are great, but they didn't really offer uh, a high uh, ceiling to what we wanted to do. Now what we can do is we can take our storage and we can say, okay, we anticipate there might be something where we need more CPU, and we can roll through and we can change the CPU type, we can change the instance type, and we can say we need, to, we need more memory, or we need more CPU, or we just need big. And we can do that across an entire ring without having to destroy it, or at our own uh, choice, we can bring up a new ring and flow the data to that and retire the old one. It gives us a lot more flexibility, but we can do it with the same procedure over and over again. We do work that procedure, and that procedure has been, um, because of that, it's been the same for, again, for bringing up the instance, for bringing up an entire ring, for expanding the ring, and we practice it over and over, and that's super important. And um, after all that, we still have some additional challenges and some interesting insights into how Cassandra's been doing for us, so I'll, I'm going to hand this back to Mike. So I um, just wanted to sort of finish up um, uh, with some sort of thoughts uh, and ongoing stuff we're looking at, um, specifically sort of how big data systems uh, access uh, disks and how that, particularly on if you are running on EBS, uh, sort of impacts uh, performance there. Uh, so taking a look at Cassandra specifically, uh, and I think this pattern holds true for uh, similar other systems. Uh, Cassandra has two different disk access modes. Uh, the default is the memory map mode. So what happens there is uh, Cassandra will take all of your SS table files, your indices, et cetera, map those into memory, and then as the uh, as reads access uh, you know addresses within those files, uh, the operating system will fault those pages in, um, uh, performing the read query underneath. Uh, and does that at a 4K uh, block uh, period at a time. Um, the other mode, which is standard, uh, does the sort of typical boring read-write system calls uh, to access those files. Uh, and that's more there for systems where memory map is not available, um, so particular Windows distributions and other systems. Uh, so the memory map system works great, um, particularly when you're performing these sort of small random access row reads. So if your user query is actually just needs to pull back uh, 3K of data, um, the 4K read means you're only doing initial 1K of overhead there. You're not pulling in lots of additional data just to serve that very small access. Uh, similarly, 
uh, performance tuning guides for Cassandra suggest keeping the read ahead small so that you're not also reading in a lot of additional data in front of what you're doing to do those sort of small performance uh, row reads. Um, now, the thing that doesn't fit into this pattern is compaction operations. Um, so if you're compacting a 100 gigabyte SS table, uh, essentially you are moving through that file in a sequential pattern from beginning to end. Um, so what, what we sort of see is um, if you take a look at a, a ring, and what we did here is we set up a three-node ring. Uh, this is consuming a portion of our production write traffic, uh, but it's not actually serving any read traffic. So any reads that you're seeing from the EBS volumes are from those compaction operations over time, uh, reading in SS tables, compacting those down to fewer uh, tables on disk. So if you take a look at the metrics here in the bottom, uh, you can actually see that the read and write uh, throughputs that we're seeing are about the same. They're speaking, uh, spiking to about 10 megabytes per second, um, but it's sort of mirrored between uh, both the read and write side. Uh, if you take a look at the write ops in the uh, top left there, uh, we're spiking to about 100 IOPS uh, per second, uh, you know, writing out this data. But if you then take a look at the read IOPS, they're actually uh, spiking to about 20x uh, the write ops. So we're actually having to do about 2,000 IOPS on the read side simply to do these large compaction operations over time. Uh, visualize another way, uh, if you take a look at your average read and write IOP size, on the right side we're doing about, averaging about 120K uh, per IOP, whereas on the read side we're only hitting about 4 or 5K. And this maps directly to that 4K block size that we're faulting in um, individually, page by page. So what does this actually mean? Well for us this impacts our costs directly. Um, on many of our rings, we've had to size our EBS disks much larger than the actual storage capacity that we need on them because we just need to support this sort of base IOP load that you get with the compactions and be able to um, get that IOP capacity from the higher capacity that you get on GP2 volumes. And this is because the IOP size for GP2 is optimized up to 256K. So if you're operating at a 4K level, you're, you're much lower than that. You're not really efficiently using the GP2 volume for this. Um, so, uh, you know, what could potentially be done about this? Um, you know, we sort of want to propose this idea of sort of a hybrid disk access mode. Um, so sticking with memory map reads for your row queries, uh, so those small random access reads, um, continue to do that with memory map. That works well for that. Uh, but when uh, Cassandra, in this case, needs to do a compaction or a scrub operation or any of those sort of large sequential operations over a large file size, is actually then falling back to a standard mode. We're just doing those boring read-write system calls, uh, which would allow us to chunk the read size based on the underlying block uh, uh, block size of the file system. Um, obviously in this case for a GP2 would be setting that somewhere up to 256K. Um, so uh, I'd love to say that we have a PR ready to go um, and uh, ready to merge into the system, but uh, what we actually did is we took that same three node Cassandra ring and we took one node in that ring and set the read ahead 
to that 256K. So once again, it's only doing a compaction operations over time. What we actually saw was uh, on the uh, top graph here, you can see the green line, which is our node with the 256K read ahead, is actually only, I mean, pretty stable, uh, somewhere under about 500 IOPS per second, whereas the other nodes are continuing to uh, spike all the way up to 2K there. Uh, similarly, the bottom graph there, the blue line is showing the, the new uh, read IOP size for that new node. Uh, a bit more spiky there, but uh, actually hitting all the way up to about 60K or so. Uh, so a lot more, uh, a lot more performant there uh, if we aren't using a lot of that disk capacity because our data retentions are much shorter, we can actually shrink the size of that GP2 volume and, and cut the costs that we're um, allocating to that a lot. So, yeah, in uh, sort of in closing here, uh, walk through uh, sort of where we started uh, last year with our Cassandra workload on Instant Store, uh, walk through sort of the journey and the struggles sort of we had moving to uh, EBS with Cassandra. Um, but now that we're there, uh, we sort of showed you really like all the benefits uh, sort of operationally, big, you know, big benefits on the operational sort of ease factors. And then sort of finish it up on some of the uh, concepts, improvements um, that could be seen now that we are actually seeing new metrics running on EBS with Cassandra. So I think some takeaways, uh, you know, we find um, in this test and other sort of performance issues that we've had with Cassandra is make it very easy to test your identical workload on Cassandra as early as possible. Um, you know, stress tests are great as well, um, but you really don't see what uh, it will look like until you get that workload onto the rings. Um, I think the best, uh, you know, the nicest thing with EBS is it gives you that instance flexibility. So if you need uh, more CPU or maybe you need more memory for higher uh, heap sizes, you have that flexibility of instances um, and can move around uh, if needed, actually, even if that initial decision of instance type wasn't correct for you or, you know, they announced C5s and you want to move over to those. Um, uh, the operational side, obviously, completely different story. Um, uh, MTTR is, you know, much shorter for us. You know, we're not staying up all night sort of babysitting a bootstrap operation anymore. Um, and, you know, the, the flexibility or cut the cost for us. Uh, we have a lot more headroom uh, to grow into on a lot of these, ra these rings, and we'll sort of continue to see the sort of cost improvements for us. Um, and a few things that we want to look into, sort of short-term future, uh, definitely sort of start kicking the tires and the Cassandra 3.0 stuff. Um, they've done some different work with the SS table uh, modules there, so curious to see how that potentially impacts sort of the disk uh, uh, performance metrics that we see with EBS. Um, and clearly we need to figure out why the network network coalescing for us doesn't work as well, uh, cut down on those EC2 transfer costs um, a bit. So, so um, yeah, I'd like to thank everybody and um, you can catch us on the Twitters or if you're on the showroom floor, uh, stop by the solar ones booth. Thanks.